0: This is Discourse, a production of the Religious Studies podcast. Every month we come to you and discuss religion in the current news. My name is Dan Gorman. I'm a PhD student at the University of Rochester in the United States, and I'm joined today by Sydney and Maxine. And Maxine, would you introduce yourself first?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm Maxine Connolly-Panagopoulos, and I am... Uh, doing podcasts with the Religious Studies Project, and I've just finished my PhD in Psychology of Religion, where I focused on religious conversion among Iranian migrants in Scotland.
2: And Sydney? Thank you for this uh, chance to talk with you. I'm Sydney Castillo, I'm a first year PhD candidate in Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Helsinki. And My thesis topic is about ayahuasca uh, rituals and ethical self-making among indigenous peoples of Peru. But I have like, a very, very deep interest in religious studies. I've been collaborating with the RSP for some years now. Some podcasts there, contributions, and I just like to talk about religion. So it's a wonderful chance to keep on the conversation.
0: And the nice thing is we can do this without leaving our houses. <laughs> That's a nice thing. So it's, we've got a couple articles to talk about today. The first one, well, not just one article, but the first topic, Little Nas Esks, the uh, country rapper who's taken the United States and the internet by storm with his provocative new video, Montero, Call Me By Your Name, which features him, among other things, dealing with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, harrowing into hell, giving Satan a lap dance, and killing Satan. Um, <laughs> Any opening
2: thoughts on this? That's It's really a fun video, if I have to say, I mean, just to <laughs> get that out of the way. It's a really fun video. I have fun watching it. I mean, it's a whole journey, I would say. It's
1: a good song as well. In uh, preparing for this and reading some of the articles, I've just been walking around all week going, call me Maya. You know, it is really catchy. Mm. Um, I think what's really interesting about it, though, you know, even as you were saying there, Sydney, it's really high it's it's really attractive to watch and it's really high budget and I think you need to mention as well the the shoes that came shortly yes. after the video. So during Holy Week, uh Nas released these sort of Satan shoes, um, that had reference to Luke ten eighteen, I believe, which which kind of spoke about a fallen angel. Um and the major, major controversy around this as well was that the shoes were supposedly created with a drop of blood in each of them. And there were only 666 of them released. And I think they they sold out within a minute. And, you know, the internet went quite mad with that. And I think it's really interesting because the company had also released Holy Shoes, I think, a couple months prior um, where it had the kind of angelic theme and the idea was that in the bottom of the shoe there was a drop of holy water and there wasn't really any, you know, no one really protested this. There wasn't, which I think is interesting because you could argue that that's sort of blasphemy as well, you know, in the sort of like commercialization of of holy water and things like that. But no one really seemed to bat an eyelid. But, you know, when it was... Tied to Little Nas, his video, the content of it, you know, there was a huge uproar. And and I think that that's among one of the really interesting parts of this.
0: Yeah, I was thinking also the most interesting commentary I read about this was an article by the religion scholar Heather White um, for NBC in which she argued that evangelicals getting angry at this content, seeing it as blasphemous, was the point and how... Lil Nas X, real name Montero Hill, is trying to give them some sense of the outrage he's felt at the church his whole life, feeling alienated from it as a gay man. And White also cites um, another theologian, um, Alicia Crosby, who points out that the video depicts Lil Nas X descending into hell, killing Satan, and taking his place. He has wings and looks like a dark angel at the end, but that he's playing with the iconography of jesus conquering conquering death. Um, I'm still not quite sure what I think the symbolism is of him appearing as an angel with black wings as opposed to white wings.
1: yeah, I think um one interesting thing I, I read in in The Guardian as well about this idea of of weaponizing his shame. And I think you really touched on that about you know him saying, like, if you're angry, good, you know, because I felt like this as well. Um, And I think, you know, rather than, I don't believe like his intention is to offend necessarily. And and even if it is like, you know, we'll we'll talk about this a bit later, but, you know, obviously he has every right to, but I think it is more about him kind of owning the shame that he's felt and sort of weaponizing it, which I think is, is a really interesting uh, take on it. And, and the, the, some of the response to it has been wild. I saw um, a governor, I think a, a Christy Gnome had had actually tweeted saying that people need to guard their eternal souls against this, that this is a national outcry again you know, a, a fight against the souls of, of young people. And a lot of folk were speaking about, you know, a lot of articles were talking about how this was so similar to the satanic panic of, of the 1980s, but of course you can't ignore the fact, as you said, like Little Nas is a queer black man and that seems to really ruffle feathers more as well.
2: Most definitely I agree with that. Um, I think one of the greater messages of the whole whole song and the video as well is like him coming together with his own like the rejection that he faced throughout his life of like his own sexuality and his perceived masculinity. But um, uh, one thing that struck me was that uh, it is always I like, often thought that hip hop is like such a male or like traditionally entrenched uh, gender roles or and, or kind of sexualities like are like deeply rooted in hip hop music. You know, so like men's have to be not only. Any kind of man, but the man and woman also in that sense. So it's kind of like uh, this kind of song and um, media or video is kind of subverting all of that uh, in a way that is also a little, also very clever because it, it's a good, very good marketing uh, tactic. I mean, I mean partially that's what also the metalheads in the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties did with their own music. You know, it's just like controversy sells, so why not get a share of that cake? uh with their like putting of the label of the like what was the name of the organization p m r c and the rating um, system that yes. came along with the parental advisory tag, which is like free publicity for all the like kind of metal bands or any kind of musician artists that start like touching upon lyrical themes that are, could seem of offending or like susceptible or hurting suchibility, so I think it's it's quite a nice way to win like hit a bird with uh, two birds with yeah, one stone. Yeah, I mean stone. this
0: this is not in any way an academic concept, but my 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 father has this thing he calls the stickiness factor that he sees in marketing. If it sticks in your head, then it's good for business. And um by those criteria, Little Nas mm-hmm. has uh, succeeded admirably. <laughs> um the last the last thing I wanted to ask about you both about this before we move on is we've seen a trend of queer men not just in hip hop, but you know, basically in pop music, being much more open about their beliefs. Um, what do we think about his choice to be vulnerable, like, and not just vulnerable to actually to really embrace his sexuality this publicly compared to past musicians who've tried to be more I don't want to say covert, but they haven't they haven't tried to draw as much attention to it.
1: I think it's a zeitgeist thing as well, not taking away from his bravery, exactly as Sydney was saying, you know, hip hop is so hyper-masculine and and has been for such a long time. I mean, you know, I don't even know if it's right to say this, but, you know, people thinking like, oh, actually Dr. Dre is gay and, and he's been hiding it for so many years and things like that. And you imagine how this would have been received not only by like the religious community in the 90s, 80s, but, Um, by the hip-hop community as well. And I think it's really positive that the zeitgeist has shifted so much that this is actually not just seen as something that is um, solely a publicity stunt and and completely subversive, but it is actually a a sense of empowerment um, and that he is being celebrated for this as well. I I think it's really interesting and it will be interesting to see how this shifts the culture as well, because in the old town road music video, you know I think at that point he hadn't officially come out yet. Um, and it's interesting that you know he's kind of chosen to to tell it this way and, and to be so vulnerable. It's, it's really admirable and and I think it's being well received.
2: Most well, definitely, I think it's groundbreaking as well because of the genre that he is involved in. But also we can draw some kind of parallelisms within metal. For example, uh, Rob Halford, like long time vocalist of Judas Priest, he was like, uh, came up gay uh, or he came out in the 90s. And uh, it it was thought that he was going to face a lot of backlash, but because also metal was thought of a kind of a community that is hyper-masculinized. You could see like many album covers from the 80s and early 90s that are like yeah, trying to touch upon that uh, kind of aesthetic. But at the end, I mean, he is just one more musician and he was like, everyone is supportive of him because, not, because it really it's just part of being a person, you know? It's also a, a, like somehow fits on your, your artistic imaginary and also what you do as an, an artist and your output. So I think it's a great thing to kind of having the the conversation in the first place within that specific genre, because I think it would just move forward.
0: Sydney, you wanted to talk further about um, religion and and heavy metal. I almost said religion and hip-hop, wrong H. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, religion and heavy metal. You sent an article by Michael Hahn from The Guardian called Nurgle, the extreme metal musician fighting Poland's blasphemy laws. Tell us about Nurgle, if I'm saying that right.
2: Yes, well... Yeah, Nergal, see. Uh, uh, Adam Nergal Darski is his full name. Well, actually Nergal is his artistic name, he's a head front headman, like head how do you say this? Frontman of a band called black metal band called Behemoth from Poland. And they have been, like, releasing black metal music since, like, the even before. <laughs> it's quite good music, if I have to say. And on, on that side, I'm wearing a black metal T-shirt as well, Mayhem, which is a Norwegian band, since it's fitting because of the topic of satanism and stuff. But anyhow, yeah, so he has, he has uh, kind of a rock star status in Poland. I mean, he was a judge for the Boys Poland, for instance. And he appears in a series of, like, kind of, reality shows and he's quite active, active in social media as well so he tends to have this kind of uh i don't know because of his own probably personal beliefs or values or marketing or kind of some kind of positioning to his band but he also tends to be a little bit um, not a little bit quite uh, controversial with how he performs on stage so for instance like uh, i just like drawing lines with Marilyn Manson, for instance, like ripping a Bible on stage. Or like b- before a concert, he also stepped on the Virgin Mary, which was one of the things that actually uh, made him, the Polish state ch- charged him with uh, uh, kind of, uh, how to say, charges of blasphemy or like inside, or horticultural religious feelings, that was the phrase. But this is the latest case of a series of cases uh, that started somehow in 2007 or 8. With uh, this ripping of the Bible and saying like many, many bad things about the Catholic Church, which in that context I think uh, are permissible. At the end, it's like artistic expression, freedom of expression as well. But this is how somehow whole, the whole uh, framing of this uh, kind of campaign, Ordo Blasphemia, is uh, cited. So it's because he wants to raise money for pay for his like uh, law, like, how do you say? for the suspensives with the, like, because it has to assist the court and stuff, but also not only for that, but also like to set in a precedent for other artists that should or can face any kind of blasphemy charges to be able to have some funds to pay for the defense. So this is the whole situation over there. And I think, uh, yeah, it's like um, something you don't see every day. Like blasphemy. It's really
1: interesting that Sydney, I I was reading that article and, um, I think he said that in the article there were only four people that had complained about the picture of him standing on, on uh, you know, and, and he had posted it on his own Instagram, a picture of a booth near the uh, the, uh, the Virgin Mary and, and four people complained. And now he's being um, sort of um, prosecuted or, or attempted to be prosecuted on this, which is really, really interesting. And, There's a part where there's one of the quotes where he says, in court, I'm really asking, is there a thermometer of religious beliefs? Because, you know, the understanding of the the counter argument to that, according to this article, is that they're saying, well, in Poland, we want to create a pluralistic society where people are allowed to have um, many religious beliefs and, and those beliefs aren't stood upon as such. You know, that's the sort of counter argument. But I love his quote about, well, what's the thermometer here? You know, people are going into his private space, his Instagram, and essentially looking um, to exploit the sort of rising tide of of blasphemy prosecutions in Poland. Um, And I think that that's really dangerous.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about, you know, how the, the Catholic Church was illegal during when Poland was a communist state and now you have a government that's arguably fascist in power in Poland's becoming more powerful and is, it's using Catholicism. You know, it, it's almost like the belief doesn't matter. It's just, it's a tribal marker. It's saying we're Poles, we're Catholics. You either line with us or you can get out. Um, I do find that the silence of the Catholic church on the way the religion's being weaponized to be rather disturbing. Uh, but I, I wonder if this is a case where you would find many Catholics, even if they criticize the Polish government, coming out against Nergal and saying, oh, he's being blasphemous, it's all right. What do we think about how we draw alliances with autocrats or not?
2: Most definitely. And I think this uh, this issue specifically on that matter has been paralyzing people like... Uh, more, more or less, like deterring people from supporting Catholicism or even belonging to Catholicism or voicing their belonging to Catholicism. So, for instance, like one of the like waves or shifts in, relig- in Polish religiosity is that young people are less likely to assert their beliefs in the Catholic Church or support the Catholic Church because of uh, happenings like this or events like this. Also, uh, not not so long ago. Po- the Polish government almost uh, completely banned abortion in, in every cases and this uh, like uh, generated a lot of uh, social uprising and protests but uh, also because like somehow like the catholic ist- institution in Poland like is so deeply rooted with government at the same time and they have been kind of covering up uh, pedophilia cases in the in the catholic church shows All of these things are somehow playing against what they actually, what the actually hierarchy or Catholic Church wants to do, which is like assert a Polish identity, or kind of like make it uniform and make it resonant with also the like state. So, but I think at the end it's like like backfiring like massively. Yeah,
1: I think it's really interesting when you have these sort of like identity lines that you don't cross. So in my work, as I was saying, I looked at Um, you know, Iranian migrants who were leaving Islam. And a lot of that had to do with a sort of rejection of the theocratic government. You know, and it's almost like you're seeing the same thing in Poland, this kind of um, theocratic government as well. And, And it's interesting how people, I mean, I guess it's unfair to say, but I would assume logically that I would be more against someone who was being accused of pedophilia and then someone who posted an Instagram photo of um, themselves stepping on a picture. But when you're in this sort of situation where your identity is so fixed with, you know, um, the state, which endorses the certain religion, you know, you can imagine that there'll be quite a lot of sort of dissonance there in terms of, well, I can't really actually stand out to that. So the illogical almost becomes the logical because it is protecting the security of our identities. And and I think that, that is, that's something that we're seeing in so many mm-hmm. pockets um, around the world.
0: I've been thinking too about how these blasphemy, like accusations of blasphemy tend to shut down conversation rather than further it. Earlier, Sydney, you mentioned the content warning labels that appeared on American um, American records starting in the nineteen eighties. And you know, those there were Democrats like Al Gore pushing those originally. It wasn't a purely left-right thing. I do find it interesting how across the political spectrum we'll wind up with these simplistic ideas of what is or is not licit. And then if you if you try to pick into that, people will just if if they're inclined to accuse things of being blasphemy, they get angry and don't wanna they don't want to think critically about it.
2: exactly well it's easier to get angry than to reason about it or like just talk with the people involved it's always harder to just especially try to when the other parts, people so.
1: involved are like wearing corpse paint and burning crosses and things like that you know it's it, it is so um oh, and that's definitely. one of the things that i think is is brilliant about black metal or is is how like theatrical it is and things like that but um, you know, to someone who, as we were saying, has that kind of identity, that's not a conversation you want to engage in. It's easier to see them as others or as so dangerous, you know, than someone who dresses like you, looks like you, even as simple as listening to the same music.
0: I think that's a really key point, Maxine. Earlier, you mentioned the so. satanic panic, but how Um, social scientific studies have shown that in the case of child abuse, it's usually not, it's not the fear of the mysterious stranger coming in. It's someone, you know, someone close by. That's where the real threats are. Mm -hmm. Speaking of threats, we have another, well, I suppose religious backlash is a theme of this episode, Christian backlash. But the next article we had, um, is about evangelical American criticisms of yoga. So once again, this is the guardian. Ed Pilkington reporting from New York about evangelicals in Alabama. Yoga can leave you injured, psychotic and a Hindu Christian (laughs) groups claim. Now, Maxine, and uh, before this, you were tossing around an article by Stephen Prothero talking about Hindu phobia as well as Hindu in the United States. Both have deep histories. Um, Did you want to bring that up in regard to this topic?
1: Yeah, it was, it was such a great article. Um, so, I mean, first of all, the the Guardian article was speaking a lot about um, actually this fear or the backlash against the um, against yoga is um, wanting to overturn a 28 year ban of yoga in public schools in Alabama, and that's what sort of sparked all of this off. Um, but the Prothero article was so fascinating because it spoke a lot about. Um, the history within America. And, and I believe it was like the 1910, 20s, there was a woman called Mrs. Bull. Um, and she had gotten involved really actively in yoga in swamis and things like that. Um, and when she died, she had wanted to leave all of her money to um, an organization and her daughter actually took the case to court and basically made the argument that, you know, the, the Swamis had, I think they referred to it like they had tarnished her brain and there were a bacteria. And so like really, really strong language coming in and, you know, she ended up winning that case. And there were a few other cases mentioned where, you know, people were ended up um, in asylums and things like that because of, you know, just the sensationalized attitudes towards um, Eastern religious practices. So it went from yoga to, well, actually yoga is a gateway drug for tantric orgies, you know, and backbreaking or just madness, absolute madness. Um, So in a way, it's like we're almost seeing that again, you know, not obviously to that extent, but you have to think about, You know, again, like we've spoken about, it doesn't have to always be the extent of calling, um, you know, Swami's uh, parasites, but it can really even be just this kind of backlash of yoga can leave you insane. You know, even seeing that today was, was really, really interesting, the parallels. The language might have changed, but the stances are still exactly the same.
2: Yes, I, I found the the uh, yoga ban in Alabama are quite like, I don't know, I, I really don't, uh, what what I take away somehow of all of these conversations that we're having is like, of course, like, there's conservative Christianity, this is like the one, the group of people that are, are, are voicing against these kind of like others, religious orders so to speak. But what is it's like? I would like to find out, and I think uh, I don't know in the U.S. South. It's kind of like a paradigmatic case of this. Uh, how these religious sensitivities become in the first place? You know? how, how they become like embodied or somehow like how they are generating within the people? Because I can imagine that the, okay, so if you are a conservative Christian, or I mean, no, of course you are not going to say you are a conservative Christian, but somehow your religious sensitivities are geared towards that. And whenever you are faced with some kind of any other religious practice or something that it really doesn't go along with what you have learned or what you have really deeply entrenched in your convictions and values, then it re- generates that response. So I I really don't know what is the history behind this or how this happens. I, I have some ideas. Maybe it has to do something with ritual or maybe it has to do something with like widespread ideas that are like permeating culture constantly. But uh, certainly it leaves uh, it leaves me wondering because I mean yoga as a as a, like, like a system or set of techniques is ultimately atheistic in the first place. Systematized by Patanjali, I don't know, I can't remember how long ago. But uh, the whole purpose was just to reach a kind of altered state of consciousness. And uh, it doesn't have like a theological system behind. It can be attached to a theological system, but it's not necessarily condition. So the whole point is just to achieve like a culture state of consciousness. And be, for this set of techniques, there is like specific positions. And what we know, uh, like or what has been like kind of widespread as a practice, a wellness practice, a well-being practice, a fitness practice, is the asanas or positions. That's the whole, just the, whole, the only thing. That has of course benefits and uh, concentration and relaxation and stuff. but it it's, like, it's just that it's not even going further like to uh, attain any kind of knowledge or like, or going communicating with another kind of reality no. it's just like okay, postures to fix some things here and there. So this is like something that really gets me thinking. I mean, if you would know that this is just the purpose of this set of positional techniques of the body, then you will know it's not so harmful as it, it might be at first or at first glance or, or impression. I don't know. I have that. I, I have that. I One thing that came after. up
0: for me when I was reading it, it actually fl- had. I flashed back to an interview I did four years ago for this podcast for the Religious Studies Project. I talked to Candy Gunther Brown, who had written about um, ways Christians are appropriating yoga. Um, how you might be an evangelical Christian, very conservative, but also go to a Reiki practitioner and go to yoga. And so we, we did the interview and then a very thoughtful critique of the interview was written by Philip. I've never actually met him. So I don't know if it's Delip or Deslip. I'm sorry, Philip. Um, But um, in the response, Philip talked about how he thought that Gunther Brown and by extension me used a too simplistic description of religion when we were talking about yoga, you know, either oh, either yoga is religious or it isn't. And he was arguing that we have to take a much broader, like Sydney's saying, a much more formal, formalistic, functionalist understanding. You know, there are Jains, there are Muslims, Hindus who practice yoga. So it's not just one religion that has produced it. And then again, what's the end point? Different people can do it in different ways or with no religious end point in mind. And they're doing it purely for the exercise or, you know, as Sydney pointed out to get to sort of a diffuse state of mind. Well, Positive psychology is all about doing that. So it's interesting how I can look back on that interview and how, on the one hand, I felt that Dr. Gunther Brown was spot on talking about the the problems of appropriation and these blurry categories. But then also how Philip could point out that both of us were missing this issue of yoga is more than just is or is not religious. Well, it can come from religion and not be religious. It can be all of these different roles in society. And actually, I will say that was one of the more educational moments I had preparing for my uh, my PhD exam in American religion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love what you were talking about there. And it, it makes me think of the lawman who actually started this move. Well, not movement, but the thing in Alabama is you know, he talks about in the article how he's practiced yoga for 10 years and yet he remains a committed Christian and worships in a Baptist church. And I think that that's really interesting as well because it doesn't have to be so black and white. But when you move from the the position of, okay, yoga is a series of poses, the psychological, the physical benefits to moralizing, I think that's when things get a little bit um, dangerous, I suppose, because you, again, like we were talking about with the black metal, it's that process of othering, you know, it's like, well, I'm right, but these people are wrong because what they're doing, you know, so the whole, all the values of the practice get completely dismissed. And it is the same as that, you know, satanic panic as well. Like yoga is a gateway to, you know, poisoning children to becoming Hindus. Like, that kind of language that they were using in the article really shows that there there does seem to be sort of this paradigm of fear that people are operating under um, with respect to things that don't match on paper, tick the boxes of this is what I believe, things that look a little bit different and therefore challenge me. You know, uh, most people will, you know, people are lazy cognitively. And so cognitively we'd rather just go, they're wrong then think anything about sort of nuance and and things like that. And, you know, I hate to say it, but thinking about the current condition that we're living in, I do think that, you know, identity and fear is a little bit higher up. So I'm not surprised that in the articles we're seeing backlash Mm -hmm. to this, backlash to that, because when, you know, when our sort of mortality salience is so prevalent, then people cling to things that give them safety and and religion I, i'm being very terror management theory here i realize but but that's a really great thing to cling to that gives you that sort of sense of of peace or identity and anything that threatens that in any way then becomes bad you know and i think that's really what we're
2: seeing yeah exactly and i think also Sometimes uh, like within like in conservative Christianity people overlook their own like uh, contemplative traditions or like kind of not even contemplative but kind of possible set of techniques that could allow for this kind of ex- strong experience or this like more direct experiences such as the in, 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 if you go to Pentecostal church and you see the, like the the moment where the glossolalia happens I mean it's like these people. People that attend don't need any kind of preparation, not, not any particular posture, just a disposition and like the collective effervescence that happens in those instances. And they just like feel really that there is like a very strong experience of communicating with God. I mean, Tanya Lorman's work on like uh, different uh, Christian communities is like one of very patent uh, evidence of that. I mean, you don't have to go that far from their own traditions. And I think. But again, I think that what is interesting to ask and to afterwards also to problematize and to look for a solutions, how these sensitivities become in the first place. So I think that will be like, uh, I don't know if there are many works. I mean, I'm familiarized with probably like anthropology, sociology, or history, maybe some works on the go. But at the same time, I think if one can address this fact, then these other kind of alterization or otherness of all their religious or uh, like kind of artistic expressions can be understood even better. So I think this is like a quite an interesting exercise, this perception of authority and how it Culture becomes. is
1: such an important aspect of that as well. And the the reason why that comes up, Sydney, is what you were talking about of, you know, praying in tongues. So I'm from South Africa um, and growing up, you know, sort of evangelical Christianity there, I always describe it as you know, really happy happy churches with a tiny little drizzle of voodoo over it because there's a big emphasis on, you know, the tokoloshi and, you know, spirits. And and actually South African Christianity is really quite interesting because it is so open to sort of the the spiritual realm and things like that. So I came to Glasgow to to study. and, And even speaking to people here, it's like, you know, I'm speaking to colleagues and and folk who are interested in religion. I'll I'll talk to them about praying in tongues and th- and things like you would have seen in in churches in South Africa, and it's like, oh no 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 no, we don't do that here. No no no, that's way too pagan.
0: <laughs> Even <laughs> though think, it looks exactly the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. It's it's really really interesting. So it's like <laughs> the cultural line is so. Whereas, funny enough, in, in you know, I don't speak for all south africans but in south africa so many churches would grow up with that aversion to things like yoga or something like that so even in cultural settings where the lines are quite blurred and are maybe a little bit more you know out there than you would maybe see here in in the uk there is still that aversion so it's interesting exactly like you said where where do those lines where are those lines drawn exactly and and how do we determine that? Who who kind of cr- creates that?
0: You know? For our last article, um, we, I'm impressed we have gone this far without using the word COVID. Um, <laughs> Maxine, I applaud you for referring to this way we're living instead of saying... <laughs>
1: I went around a bad way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but again, but this article also deals with some idea of um, Christian resistance to... LGBT issues um, to cultural change. Um, So the last article is um, an op-ed piece by Marianne Duddy Burke. Marianne Duddy Burke is the head of Dignity USA, the largest LGBTQI Catholic group in the United States. And in the article, she discusses how the Catholic church is allowing uh, its Catholics to get the COVID vaccines, even though they were developed partially from stem cells taken from aborted fetuses. The church is arguing that for the sake of the greater good and stopping the pandemic, and since there are no um, vaccines available that weren't made from aborted stem cells, go ahead and get the vaccine because we have to end the pandemic. Duddy Burke points out that at the same time, the Catholic church isn't compromising on not sanctioning condom use to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS and also not allowing Catholic healthcare facilities to practice um, gender affirming care for trans and non-binary patients. Duddy Burke, I think, makes a persuasive argument saying if you're going to argue about basically about religious harm reduction, if you're going to say it's all right to sidestep abortion rulings to get the COVID vaccine, then why can't you bend the rules against birth control to prevent the spread of AIDS? Why can't you practice gender affirming health care to prevent rates of depression, suicide, um, homelessness, family displacement for, for trans and LGBT people?
1: Yeah, this was really an interesting read. Um, and, and as we say, I agree, I think the author makes such such a logical and such a clear argument. Um, and it was actually, uh, you know, to be honest, I felt quite sad when I read this as well because of the strength of, of her argument and, you know, the, the central question exactly as you said, like why should preserving lives and the common good um, be the highest virtues only for COVID? You know, and, and it is just so powerful, um, the points that, that she makes. And I think those are, those are my thoughts on it, just it was disheartening to read this, I think.
2: Yes, I have to agree with you, but I don't know, like, if, if I'm able to quote this phrase, I mean, it says so much in so little, just... Uh, to quote from the article, it's morally acceptable to receive COVID-19 vaccines that have used cell lines from abortive fetuses in the research and production process. So I think one could write a thesis about it. Or like at least an article because it's there's so much information in so little. In the sense that, okay, so I don't know, it's like picking up from some reasons on sociology of religion, maybe it's like religious institutions as they would like to appeal to any other kind of we would call authority or transcendental values as much as they would like to do that and they do they have necessarily to play by the rules of any other earthly institution i mean and that involves like negotiation that involves managing resources that involves bureaucracy in some way so it is like uh, yes of course i mean you you cannot really have like uh, if you don't have anyone to preach upon, well, why why would it matter to have the institution in the first place? If people die so much and you don't have any flock, then why would you be continuing preaching? So it's just like it shows how actually flexible religious institutions are despite appearances of what they would, could, at first glance, appear like very conservative or straight. Oh, I mean, they, they like... A, it's like any other kind of uh, social institution. They have to negotiate. They have to like assert themselves in a specific given time and place in history and culture. And I think this is no different. So, or also thinking, um, in the sense that, uh, just, of course you have this kind of moral obligations or like, uh, values that you affirm, but, uh, It somehow seems that the more the basic, like the basic livelihood, livelihood of people is affected. I mean, you have to give some of somehow condone some of, or like give them some of them away. So okay, we can experiment with vaccine brought from uh, stem cell research, but at least we have someone to preach upon that way. But the other things, no, we don't, (laughs) we don't negotiate with that. I wonder what would need to happen. For this, uh, like a possibility to be, uh, like well, in
0: some re- in some regards, I think if the Catholic Church wants to bend the, the the letter of the law whilst not changing doctrine, allowing condom use is going to be easier for conservative Catholics because um, mm-hmm. you know AIDS affects everyone regardless of sexual orientation, and so they can say, well, if these are, I could see. I could see the Catholic Church arguing that it's okay for straight couples to use condoms when they're worried about it. But the bigger mm. sticking point is when we're talking about um, sex between members of the same gender or between people who identify as LGBT, um, same goes for offering trans affirming care. That would require the Catholic Church to actually say that it is not disordered to be a trans person, which would require a much more fundamental shift on what the Church teaches about sexuality and gender, which are two different things that the Catholic Church tends to treat as synonymous. Exactly. But I, I don't know what it would take to move the Vatican. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. No, too much power plays in place. It's, it's, a, lot. it's a lot of things to think. Yeah, but I think uh, considering this uh, context that we are living in, It just shows how somehow, like, police institutions can be flexible if they want to, and if the conditions are, make it necessarily to be flexible. So we just need to keep on pushing for these other rights and, like, having, like, the conversation, as I said, but also having action to back that conversation up.
0: It actually goes back to the image of Montero saying, well, call me, he's saying, call me by your name. He's almost like saying, I want you to say my name and recognize me as a person. Now the question is, can conservative Christians who are frightened by change, can they do that?
1: It's not all bad. You know, I was just trying to remember the article that um i'm busy reading at the moment and and i I don't have it with me but maybe we can link it in the description um about gay and lesbian affirming churches you know and and we do see that a lot in christianity of, of churches that you know do openly accept folk um who are lgbtq and and i think that that is something that is definitely positive and and so it's, I guess, exactly as, as you were saying, Sydney, is that there is some flexibility, definitely not enough, um, but at least there are some sort of movements into, you know, greater sort of openness and, and acceptance. And and that was a really brilliant article. I wish I could remember uh, the names, and I'm I'm only halfway through, but it was really, really, it was really interesting to see how, you know, um, individuals who are LGBTQ can actually sort of um, no longer compartmentalize these two identities, you know, being gay and being Christian, but can actually integrate them and get a lot more sort of like spiritual and psychological freedom and um, equilibrium in that, which I think was, was really interesting. So I will send, send the link Mm -hmm. to it, this article.
0: Well, and I think if, as I mindful of the time here, as we move to the end of the program, a through line does seem to be in all these cases is that Christianity is not monolithic. You have Christians who practice yoga, whether or not they find religious benefit in it and find it acceptable. You have Catholics who are, well, first of all, Catholics who are queer and uh, you know affirm their place in the church. You also have Catholics who are not queer and affirm their place in the church. This is true, I'm sure, of some more liberal evangelicals, even though in, this, in the United States, the conservative ones kind of suck up all the media oxygen. Um... And certainly in Poland, as, as Sydney pointed out, you know, very few young Poles go to church regularly. Um, now, I think the big question is: do do we assume we can't assume that people who aren't re- religiously observant that doesn't mean they're going to be liberal on cultural issues. I think that's the big. I think we need to get better at parsing if you if you're not taking a liberal stance on religion, like Marianne Duddy Burke is doing. She's a Catholic, and she's the head of an LGBT Catholic organization. If you're saying I'm just not going to worship at all, I'm going to be secular. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do we see happening more? of? Are people who are dissatisfied with conservatism going to walk away from religion entirely, or take it in a liberal direction? I'm not sure.
2: Indeed. Oh, just to make a precision, there is even within black metal there is um black metal. So it's like people that are Christian and they play. With black metal aesthetics <laughs> and sounds, so even there there is like this kind of yeah. flexibility, nuances, and possibilities. In I love that. So, you can see it in art. You can see it in everyone. Yeah.
0: Just trying to imagine a praise band being like, "Love the Lord," <laughs>
1: <laughs> running around forests. <laughs>
2: Exactly, like (laughs) Angry (laughs) Pandas. And that, ladies and
0: gentlemen, is the first and last time you'll ever attempt me here to sing death metal. Uh, (laughs) Maxine, Sydney, thank you both for your time. And uh, everyone, go watch Montero's video. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR. And it's produced by the Religious Studies Project Association A Scottish charitable incorporated organisation Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey And founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me And David Robertson, that's the other guy Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne And our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews Podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.